Welcome to the Gay Buddhist Forum, where teachers from all schools of Buddhism offer their perspectives on the Dharma and its application in modern times, especially for LGBTQI audiences. These talks are offered freely to the world and made possible by appreciative listeners. If you would like to support our efforts to share the Dharma with underserved audiences, please visit gaybuddhist.org. There you can donate, find a list of upcoming speakers, or enjoy many hundreds of these recorded talks dating back to 1996. teaching meditation in 1999 and completed the four-year Spirit Rock Insight Meditation Society's teacher's training. In beginning her own meditation practice in her late teens, Heather studied with senior teachers in the Insight Meditation and Tibetan traditions and has sat one to three months of retreat a year for over 15 years. She's a teacher for a mountain stream meditation center in the Sierra foothills and also teaches classes, day-longs, and retreats nationally. For more information, you can please visit her, web, her website at heathersunberg.com. Welcome. <laughs> <laughs> that was beautifully done. <laughs> oh, this world we live in, huh? <laughs> oh. So I'm going to make sure I can see everybody. I can just barely see George. Hi. <laughs> see, okay, see Robert here. Yeah, uh, so good to be back. I, I, I sort of feel like this has um, become an annual pilgrimage for me, although I'm, I'm, I'm happy to say that I'll be back again in September just due to my schedule, which is unusual. But um, this time of year, uh, I come down from the Sierra Foothills and, and my home meditation center up there to teach the Metta Retreat at Spirit Rock for a week, so the Loving Kindness Retreat. Um, and it starts tomorrow, and actually this would be a responsible moment to, um, before I forget, just say that right before I came here, I received an email from Spirit Rock saying, wow, you know, there's a lot of illness this year, and I guess after the workday ended on Friday, there's been a number of cancellations, and it's last minute. So if you happen to have a life, where you just thought, yeah, a week of loving kindness uh, starting tomorrow night would be good. There's actually a couple spots. I mean, this is unheard of. 
This retreat fills months in advance. Um, so it's myself, Larry Yang, Donald Rothberg, Condé Mason, and uh, we love doing this together. So if you're interested in that and have that kind of life, just talk to me afterwards. We could probably hook you up. So that's why I am uh, down here. I'm just orienting a little. You know, it's like kind of like reconnecting. It's so easy when there's a large group of people and one of me to just be like, yeah, everyone feels generally friendly. And I sort of launch into my thing. And it's like, no, hi. I'm really honored to be here. I'm really glad that you're here. Whatever conditions brought you here this morning. Um, you know, what a blessing. What a blessing that we have communities like this. And I really want you to know, I say this often when I come, but I want you to know that I think of you. You know, and my guess is that other teachers who have the privilege of coming and visiting and sharing uh, the teachings here also think of this community. Um, you know, the communities that I don't get to so often, it's kind of like, oh, it's a Sunday morning. I know that practice is happening here. Oh, it's a Tuesday night. I know that practice is happening here, all over the country, here and here and here and here and here. Uh, so it's just really nice to be back in the room with you. And since I saw you last, it's been a whole year. And uh, it's kind of been an eventful year in my own life and in my own practice. <clears throat> and I would say the highlight of the last year is that uh, I had incredible privilege, uh, actually, and, and made some sacrifices so that I was <coughs> able to take uh, what turned out to be a 100-day sabbatical. And it was uh, 100 days in India. So I went to India. And what was interesting is I didn't actually know that it was 100 days in India until about halfway through the trip. And any of you that has, you know, you've gone backpacking or you've gone on retreat or something, at some point you've got enough space, things have gotten simple enough that you sort of have the thought, I wonder how long I've been here. I wonder how long I will be here. <laughs> and so I started counting. And I realized, oh, how great. It turns out it was 100 days in India. So I didn't really have uh, a plan, and I didn't really have an itinerary. I wanted to, um, I wanted to step outside of my comfort zone, and step outside of um, kind of the familiar uh, areas that I move around in California and in my own personal life, and just see who I am, where I'm at. What is this practice about for me today? And have the space to do that without all of the beloved communities I serve watching me do it. Yeah, it's a little space. <clears throat> what I didn't anticipate, which I should have anticipated, is that uh, just like if you do a day-long retreat or you know a longer retreat, uh, it actually doesn't end when it ends. There's a whole process of integration. So what's been interesting is I got back in early October and uh, my integration process has been a lot more intense than I ever anticipated. I didn't actually come back the same woman. And then I didn't know how to teach. I have been teaching one thing or another for 25 years of my life. And I, I actually didn't know how to do it. So it was this incredible, messy, uh, public 
experience that I was sort of just coming out of. I realized, oh, you know, going to SF Gay this morning, fantastic. Oh, I think I can say something without being a complete mess. I was so relieved. <laughs> but there was a period after I got back where it was a complete mess, and it was just completely transparent. That was all I had to offer was my own transparency. I would look at my notes, and they would swim before my eyes, and, oh, actually, just so I'm skillful, can I borrow your clock? <laughs> I would look at the clock and go, I don't know how this fits in with anything that's going on now. You know, we don't want us to be here until 3 o'clock in the afternoon. So I promise I'll track. <laughs> um, so here's what's interesting. Why am I telling you all this? In part because, you know, I just catch up a little bit. But also, this is an anniversary for me today. It's been 100 days today since I got back. And so in, in honor of actually how much this moved to <laughs> me, uh, I wanted to share just a little bit about my journey, just a couple of stories, and really plug them in to the spiritual path as I understand it. And then I want to leave some a little bit of time that I bet I'm not the only one with stories and how they weave into our lives, how these practices weave into our lives. So that's what I'm interested in, in our community dharma. So one of the stories that I wanted to share actually happened at the very, very beginning of the trip. The trip. It was the first time in my life that I traveled so internationally by myself. Just always had conditions where I was traveling with a friend or a partner or a family member or somebody. And uh, this time the conditions were that I was going alone. And so... You know, I did my flights. I flew through Frankfurt, uh, did all that, flew into Delhi. You know, by the time I got to Delhi, I think I had been on the road for, oh, I don't know, maybe 30 hours straight. How many of you have traveled? I'm sure some of you have traveled for 30 hours straight, just kind of show of hands. A few of us, yeah. yeah. So you know how that goes. You ever really slept much, and you know, you're trying to stay grounded and oriented while you're moving through a lot of time zones. Maybe. And uh, so I got there and had to transfer to domestic because I was going to take another flight to another part of India. And when I got to the desk, 1 a.m. in the morning, there's really nobody there. And the first thing they say to me is, oh, you don't exist. And, I mean, I had to laugh, right? <laughs> I was delirious with exhaustion. And, and for me, as a, a long-term spiritual practitioner, to be told that I don't exist, I take that in a slightly different way. <laughs> I'm a bit of a sense of humor about it. Uh, and so I looked at the guy, and I said, I said, oh, I'm, I, I'm, he basically said, you know, you don't exist on the list. And I said, oh, I must exist on the list. No, you don't. Oh, I must. I just traveled all the way from California or what. But I thought that was actually a really interesting moment, right? <clears throat> because it told me something about, well, we've all been told in subtle and not-so-subtle ways in our lives that we don't exist, that we, we, don't, we, don't, we aren't seen, or that we don't matter in some way. And this is deep conditioning that moves through us, not just individually, uh, but culturally and in our communities, right? And so here's a situation where it sort of just manifested in a very practical, personal way, like I'm just not on the list. And I thought in retrospect, and, and my resources weren't all there because I was exhausted. 
I thought in retrospect it was interesting because it would have been really, really easy to, to react, right? I could have collapsed and given up temporarily or, I don't know, permanently. I don't know where I would have gone at that point. Uh, I could have fought. You know, I could have been rude. Um, and just by some grace and probably the power of all these years of practice, what I noticed was instead of reacting, I was actually able to bring response in. And I think that's what happens when you know, life is not always kind to us individually and in terms of our communities and groups. It's not. And there's injustice, and it's not fair. And then there are these moments through, um, through the power of something greater than that, that we don't actually act out of the ways that we've internalized that, because sometimes we have, and I have in some ways, that we actually respond and go, what is a skillful response to this? And that's just what happened to happen. I finally just looked at him and I said, you know, um, is there somebody from the airline I can talk to? And he pointed me across the way, and I went to a different counter. And, you know, the guy didn't want to give me the time of day. It was like I didn't exist. And, and I was just, really, it was kind of interesting. And uh, I was just patient. I stood there, and I stood there. And timing in India is very different than timing in the U.S. I knew that I had to add, like, ten times as long as would be reasonable for me as an American. <laughs> Uh, and I weigh in, I weigh in, I sir, you know. And finally, I just, I kind of just shoved the thing under the counter. I'm like, will you just take a look at this? And you know, sure enough, somehow they found me, and, uh, you know, there I was. And so, anyway, I mean, there's interesting dharma in that. Because I think that really applies in our lives. Are our resources available so that we can see what a skillful response would be that doesn't increase the reactivity? Or can we have compassion for ourselves? when we can't see, and our resources aren't there, and we can't respond skillfully. And when other people do the same, can we not, like, we don't condone the unskillful action, but we say, oh, they just didn't have it then. Yeah. And then, of course, when we look at it on a group level, it's even more intense. Uh, and I feel like in some ways the response, there, it's like we need to be able to look out for the response there. Because it's really easy, if you're anything like me, in terms of where that plays out for me, it's just easy to kind of give up. But we don't. So then I went into the airport lounge and I discovered something amazing. They don't seem to have these in most American airports, but what they had was... So if you've been to Delhi ever in your life, New Delhi, the old airport was pretty funky. And, and I mean, like, India funky. The last time I was in the Delhi airport, I was in the bathroom and there were rats running all over the floor. <laughs> so they've actually made a new airport. It's really nice. And so I, I walked into the lounge and there were these amazing chairs. They weren't just upright, but you could actually, like, sort of lay down. And it had been 30 hours. And not only that, but there were about 15 of them and there were... All and everyone there was um, f from India. I don't know what part of India, but from India except me. I was the only Westerner there. And there was one spot left, and it was right in the middle. So, okay. And it's the middle of the night, and they're kind of sleeping. I'm tiptoeing, got my gear, trying to be respectful and quiet. And, you know, I lay down, phew. This is going to be great. I've got three hours until the next flight. 
hooray, right? I mean, it's amazing when we find our comfort place and the system just goes, Oof, we've arrived. <laughs> you know, and, and this sense that, that even though I didn't know everybody there and I was in an unfamiliar situation, that they're, you know, like really tracking the field. I think as long as I'm mindful, this is an okay situation. So what's the very next thing that happens? And this story is actually about watching the mind. I'll be really clear about that. I'm telling you a story because to me, these stories are examples of how do we watch the mind and how do we work with the mind in very normal situations. We've all been in an airport, or we will be. So the very next thing that happened that I didn't notice was that there was a vending machine right next to where I was. Actually, that's not true. See, my memory's already changing. I did notice there was a vending machine. I remember because I noticed it and thought, oh, great, I can get some bottled water before I take off. Because uh, I didn't have my SteroPen ready. You guys know SteroPen? Yeah, but not everybody does. This is really good to know. If you're going to a country where you're not sure if the water is clean, they're about this big. They're really easy to pack along. They're battery-operated or plug-in, depending on where you're going. And they use UV rays. 30, uh, 90 seconds, they'll clean the water. So when I go to um, the places in Asia I go, I need two things, my passport and my SteroPen. Everything else is extra. So I thought, oh, bottle water, great. So I laid down, and the next thing I hear is giggling. I thought, okay, giggling. And, and so I sort of open one eye, I'm really tired, I just want to sleep. I open one eye, and there's these adorable little kids, you know, five, eight, ten years old, like three of them, I think. And they're at the vending machine, it's the middle of the night, and they're giggling. And, and then they pull out their rupees, and they're going to buy a snack, right? Uh, and so they're giggling, they're going to buy a snack, and they start pushing the button to get the cookies that they want. And they're giggling about the cookies, and the cookies will not come out. You know where this is going, right? I mean, th these are these moments where, like, we can get really, really annoyed, or we can have a transformation. And when we're living in urban areas, you know this better than I do. I don't live in urban areas, but we need it everywhere. So they're giggling about the cookies, and the cookies aren't coming out. And so then they start talking really, really loudly about what to do uh, in a language that I don't understand. And then they start pounding on the buttons, right? And then they start, like, pounding against the whole vending machine. And they're talking, and they're trying to figure this out, and they're pounding, and there's... 15 chairs with lots and lots of people sleeping. So what do I do? This is not a trick question. If you're just in a normal state of mind, what, what would be your basic response to this? Try to help. I wish. Tell to be quiet. So somebody said try to help, and I said I wish. Somebody said tell to be quiet. I definitely could have done that. But basically what happened was I got annoyed. I was totally exhausted. I'd just gone through this thing where I didn't exist, and I just wanted to get a little bit of sleep so that I could conduct myself in a safe way where I was getting off. And it was the situation where I was actually most concerned about my safety, and I just wanted to get a little sleep. Yeah. So annoyance arose in the mind. Now, again, through the grace of 25 years of practice, I noticed it. I'm like, hmm, annoyed. So what's the next thing that happened? They left. I went, phew. 
But sure enough, two minutes later, they came back with their parents. And I thought, oh, great, the parents will get the cookies. So this is what happens when we start to assume. My assumption was the parents will get the cookies and they will tell their children to be quiet so that I won't have to tell their children to be quiet. Because I've worked with kids for 20 years. I know how to tell kids to be quiet. Great. No. <laughs> because I was coming from an American cultural context where that would, might be what happened. In this context, there were actually four different adults. There were now five or six different kids because, you know, when you travel in a family group in India, there can be 25 people involved in this. And they're all there, and they're all talking really loudly and laughing and pounding, and that no one can make this thing work. <laughs> At that point, I realized that actually I needed to make a leap outside of what I thought was right and wrong, outside of my cultural assumptions. And what happened was I started to smile. I started to have a sense of humor, like, this is ridiculous. This is hysterical. You know, this is something I can learn from. So I started to giggle, too. Then I started looking around to see if anybody else around me was having a response, and they actually weren't. I was the only one having a response. I thought, huh, okay, so I'm out of attunement here. And so I just started having a sense of humor, and it turned into sounds. All they're carrying on and pounding and laughing in different languages, just sound. And I actually started to fall asleep. It was just like all this sound, and it, somehow it was really friendly. And I started to feel really connected with them on that archetypal level. I don't know anything about them, but I think about them. You know, they're part of my circle of metta for all beings now, loving kindness for all beings. Probably never see them again in my life. I don't make up a lot of stories about them because I know I don't know. But I just feel them. That's what happens when we move around in our communities in the world and we actually see somebody. It's the opposite of what happened to me at the counter. And so the very next thing that happened is I was feeling more connected than I would have ever anticipated. And I was starting to fall asleep. Is that all of a sudden there was this noise. <laughs> And a great cheer rose up of these like 10 people. And every single person in the chairs woke up. And the cookies came out, and the children ran around eating the cookies and fighting over the cookies and sharing the cookies. And all of us looked at each other and kind of smiled a little bit, and we all went back to sleep. No. So it's like, to me, this is where we can start to see, not just individually, but at a community level, at a cultural level, how we practice and the importance of noticing our triggers. It's very, very likely in my own mind that if something is going to arise that's in a reactive scale, it's, it's more likely to be on the aversive side. In Buddhist psychology, we talk about three basic types. Um, and they all sound not so great. The greedy type, the aversive type, and the delusional type. The thing is, is they all have um, um, qualities that are strong when they're less reactive. Like, for example, an aversive type, which, which I am, can have incredible powers of discernment. And I see that. When, when I can decrease the aversion side, the discernment side can really come to the foreground. Uh, just as an example. So we can start to see, what are our habitual tendencies? How do they come up in the moment? What is the relationship between that 
and how resourced I'm feeling. Like, have I slept? Have I eaten? Do I feel supported? Uh, you know, whatever yours are, it'd be interesting. It, actually, you know, what are some of your resources that make it so that reactivity decreases? Just have a few people call them out. Food. Food, yeah. Coffee. Coffee. <laughs> Running. Running. Running, yeah, absolutely. Massages. Massages. Yeah. Fellowship. Fellowship. Music. Yeah, music. Meditation. Sleep. Meditation, yeah. sleep. Yeah. Interest. Interest. Ooh, interest. That's an important one. Yeah. Because if I hadn't had the interest in relating to that situation, whether it was not existing as, as a human being on the planet in that particular situation or this family system, without the interest, it would have been much more likely reactive. Yeah. Both sides. So, you know, those are a few. It's like, we can start to notice that. We can start to notice, oh, well, reactivity's arising. What are my tools? I can notice it. I can have a sense of humor about it and not take it so personally. These are all things I did, right? Um, I can look for the areas where I can hook into a sense of connection. When that cheer went up, when the cookies fell out, I had complete sympathetic joy for them. It was as if I had gotten the cookies. <laughs> It's like, this is how we practice. And it's really, really impactful. It's really impactful in our communities and in our world at this time. So that's one story. I'll tell you one other story. I want to hear from you. Oh. And this story happened right at the end of my trip, interestingly. I had the incredible privilege to receive a lot of teachings with a lot of other people from His Holiness the Dalai Lama during this trip. And although I've had the privilege in my life of receiving many teachings from him over the years here in this country and, and also uh, in India, He just, I just grokked him this time. I, I don't know, he just landed in my heart in a very um, meaningful way for me. And uh, so I was able to drop by his uh, hometown and his, uh, his home monastery in exile in India, which is in Dharamsala, India. It's about 8,000 feet in the foothills. And he was giving three days of teachings. It was kind of the last thing I did. Um, I'd seen him earlier in the summer. And so I've, I've sat for teachings at his home temple before. And, you know, there's usually several thousand people. And it's pretty packed. It's not a big temple. It's pretty simple, actually. And it was very packed. And, and one of the things I've noticed in his home temple, which is kind of interesting, is... They tend to seat the Westerners or uh, uh, the Asians that are not Tibetan or Ladakhi or those from India in certain places. There's like seating areas. And it's just concrete. So you can sit on this piece of concrete. Thank you very much. Uh, and there tends to be some jockeying for space for those of us that are used to having more space than this, which is about how much space you have. 
and you're sitting there day after day after day. Uh, and so there's like jockeying for position and, and weird dynamics happen. It's like competitive elbow room or something. And it's really mm -hmm. bizarre compared to the teachings of non-harming and compassion that he's sharing. <laughs> and so after the first day of this, I just, I made a decision. I thought to myself, you know, I'm not going to sit up here like this. I'm going to go down and sit with the Tibetan community, the local Tibetan community. And they had this whole other area that was farther away and you could only see them on a screen. I just thought, you know, I'm going to go sit with the community. And, and I can't be anything but an outsider. But I, I just, and you know, I was hoping it was okay and that they'd welcome me and I didn't really know. And, you know, because you're supposed to sit where you're supposed to sit. So the next day I kind of showed up and and went way in the back. I didn't you know, want to disrespect anybody or take anybody's seat. And, and kind of parked myself down. And I was so grateful that I did. Because I actually learned as much from that as I did from His Holiness the Dalai Lama. Um, no disrespect to how deep his teachings were, but it's different kinds of learning. One kind of learning is sitting here and, and hopefully I say something that's helpful. If it's not helpful, let it go. And another kind of learning is just being with people and being in situations and, and seeing what we have to learn there. And so I learned a lot from that because it reminded me actually of my religion of origin. It might remind you of some of your religions of origin, uh, if, if you have one, where everyone was wearing their absolute best clothes. I mean, they were dressed to the nines. I felt like this little vagabond, you know, I was wearing this floppy t-shirt and just pants that were totally trashed because I only had two pairs of pants and it was the last end of my trip. And I mean, it really, I, I was not dressed appropriately for that context. And really, really just all of their best clothes and it was all about being seen and seen and everyone was talking to each other. It was community. The children were running around. Food was being passed around. It just reminded me of actually my religion of origin. And it was interesting because His Holiness, when he teaches, how many of you have heard His Holiness here? Because sometimes he teaches in South Bay. Yeah, some of you have. He's very different at his home temple. You know, here it's like, our religion is kindness and everybody welcome is very, very user-friendly. There, he just socks it to you. He'll give the whole lineage in an hour. The whole <coughs> lineage. And then he'll just go down to the deepest area that he knows and just go for it. And there's no context and there's no making anybody feel like they know what's going on or okay. It's, it's a totally different experience. And what I noticed about the local Tibetan community is they would listen for a little while um, and then they start chatting again or they start playing with the kids or they start eating food and then they listen for a little while and they start chatting and, and all of this. Sometimes they do their malas for a little while and then they get up and wander around and talk to people. Um, so, you know, from a certain context it was a little bit distracting because I was actually there to listen to the teachings and learn. But, but, I, but I started to see, I, I started to understand actually why uh, His Holiness does what he does while he's there. Um, and I felt really, really connected. So that's the context out of which just a really, really two-line teaching that he gave at the end I wanted to share with you. Uh, and he has this tradition when he's teaching in non-English speaking countries he teaches only in Tibetan. It's all translated. You wear a little FM radio. And then at the very end, he'll share something like pith teachings.
for the English speakers. Just a few minutes, and he'll, and he'll do it in English. And so I really, really wanted to hear it, and yet I could barely hear it because the speakers and everyone was talking so loud, and the kids were going berserk at that point. It's the end of the morning, so I'm straining to hear, like, is there something important? Just kind of interesting, like, was there really something more important than what I'd already learned? But I love what he said, and I want to share it with you. Two lines. He said, what I want to share uh, with, with you Westerners uh, are my thoughts about friendship. He said, my thoughts about friendships are that true friendship is based on trust. Trust is based on compassion. True friendship is based on trust, and trust is based on compassion. And I wrote it down in my notebook like a good student, and then everybody got up and started moving, and if you didn't get up and start moving, you were going to be run over. And uh, I thought, thanks. I love it when it's simple. Because then I can take a simple two-liner like that and reflect on it as I have been for the last hundred days, reflect on it for years, share it with communities, and then they have insights about it that supports my practice. So my brief reflections, because you probably have your own, is just, oh, wow, right. Whether that friendship is a friendship with ourselves, whether that friendship is a friendship with a personal other, whether that friendship is the spirit of friendship within a community and among communities, there is a piece that's based on trust. And sometimes that trust doesn't actually manifest between communities, but we have to actually pull it up and lead from it in our own hearts. But only if it feels authentic. And if it doesn't feel authentic, then it's a cultivation inside ourselves. And then it starts to be contagious. But that the trust itself is based on compassion. That I don't always have trust. And that friendships don't always have trust. And that communities don't always have trust. And we need to have so much caring and understanding for that kind of suffering, which is inevitable, right? because we're human. We're doing the best we can, right? So true friendship is based on trust, and trust is based on compassion, is what he shared. And that's what now what I'm passing on. So um, may it be helpful, may it be a benefit, uh, and that's what I have to offer for reflection. <coughs> I want to leave plenty of time for your own reflections and, and how are you working with all of this? Because really, um, I know it's my role to offer uh, teachings, but I see this as actually a community experience that we all carry so much wisdom and experience. So I'm just curious if you have any reflections or questions. Please. So I, I loved your little short ending of it. I love concise things and I discovered my thoughts immediately you know a flood of examples of that yeah yeah uh, the first one that came to mind and I'm Jewish by background was the Palestinians and the Israelis yes and how if they would just do that mm -hmm. there are ways that they can be so supportive of each other for the benefit of all yeah and then I thought well how about us <laughs> uh, and so the thoughts that came to mind because there were some discussions here before and I know the people here was Tea 
party members, mm. Republicans, mm. Uh, and so forth, and what's happening in the country because of the absence of that. Uh, and then I thought of, well, what about me? Mm -hmm. uh, and the thought that came to mind is some issues I'm having with water leakage in the relatively new condo that I am um, in with the, the manager and <coughs> the, potentially the homeowners association mm -hmm. and how in each of these cases a movement in that direction looks to me as being a potentially more beneficial path, not only for them, mm -hmm. but even for me and us. So, mm -hmm. thank you. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, and I, I, I love it how you moved it all the way from like very, very uh, particular groups far away, and of course have tremendous influence all over the world, uh, you know, all the way back to like, yeah, my house and the water leakage. And, and you know, the I mean, politics, in our Dharma communities are really, really difficult. Because if we want to support not just a, um, not just a kind of surface welcome, but a genuine welcome on every level, including political, it's including saying, you know, I would actually like to sit with you and be with you in your experience, even though I don't agree with it all, necessarily. And it's so charged, right? But I have an incredible commitment, actually, these, these last few years as a, as a teacher. I mean, I think in some ways uh, we make a commitment not to talk about our particular politics because, of course, there's influence when you sit up front. But even more than that, I'm really careful that, to be aware of the politics that I might not agree with and like almost create a field of welcome for it in whatever room I'm in because I don't know where your politics are. So even though we might not necessarily be having an actual conversation about it, I just want whatever people's political spectrum is to be able to be here and sit together and connect on the level that we can connect. <laughs> I certainly have family members where I say, you know, actually, I think it's better if we don't talk about this. Let's connect where we can connect. You know what I mean? <laughs> but yeah, it's complicated. What else? Please, yeah. Thank you for your talk. Yeah. Um, really... I appreciate the idea of re having resources, kind of a skillful response, and I feel like um, I'm fairly new to Buddhism and maybe a year into it, um, you know, practicing mindfulness, and I keep saying I'm just acting as if, ah, because yeah. I don't really know what's happening, I'm just doing this <coughs> with the faith that something could shift. I'm a, I'm a big fan of the acting as if practice, yeah. just for you to know. <laughs> so I think for it to shift. Like, uh, I teach kindergarten there a thousand oh. times a day to practice mindfulness. <laughs> and on one day last week, one of my students who was very low academically, um, I walked up and she was just drawing dots on her paper. Mm -hmm. And um, the assignment was very clear what she was supposed to be doing. Mm -hmm. I was mindful of I wanted to uh, scold her. Mm. That's what was done to me. Like my mom was very negative. You're bad. Mm. And my mind, I, I was mindful that I was thinking, "You're bad. You're not doing your work." But instead, I crouched down and I said, "Well, you're drawing dots, but that's not really learning what you're supposed to be learning. Can I help you?" And I took her hand and I practiced writing her name. Mm. She's she's someone who doesn't know what those seven letters are. Mm -hmm. She knows how to draw it, but not yeah. what it is. And yeah. um, 
So I drew her name with her and talked and said the letters and was with her and walked away. And then a few minutes later, she started crying. Mm. And I took her aside when the other when the kids went to a PE. And basically, it turns out that uh, her mother and father separated. I knew that, and they're fighting over her. And mm. on her birthday, her dad quote unquote kidnapped her. Mm. Um, and the police took her away from dad, and mom said, I'll never let me see her. You know, just like oh, so <laughs> And I was so glad that I had a skillful response instead yeah. of screaming at her, like, do your work. Which is what my, like, you want to yell at this kid at the vending machine, like. Well, right, and it's like, it's not even our voice, right? It's, none of it is, none of it is really ours forever permanently, but it's like, that's really not our voice. As you said, it's your mother's voice. Yeah, and, and you and you didn't take it to the next to the next generation, and it's so beautiful because she felt your friendship, and out of that trust, she could then tell you. Mm-hmm. And I have compassion now with her, so I think yeah. you know, I'm, pre- I'm, I'm using too much therapy. Oh, oh, <laughs> thank you so much for doing that work, and thank you so much for bringing your practice to that work. Oh, I did that work for many years. And it's just, it's, it's, we're not perfect. And it's so influential. Thanks. Please. Hi, Mark. Thank you so much for speaking today. Mm-hmm. It's great. I really related a lot um, to a vending machine. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a metaphorical vending machine, too, for sure. <laughs> I've been, like this year, I'm, I'm committed to just commitment and surrender. Mm. And I was in Key West for New Year's and I went to this yoga class mm. and it was chickens. <laughs> We've been to Key West and hot and mm-hmm. this cramped room and mm-hmm. you know <clears throat> then all of a sudden like two guys came in at the last minute when there was no room. Like I couldn't even believe they <laughs> fit next to me and you know I started to be commit- committed and surrendering and then like his phone's on boom so I'm like hot chicks like hey with the breasts out like you know, yeah. on the screen that yeah. beeps on yeah. you know and then I'm like I can't see her I'm seeing these tits and you know, like, like and I just get this like I give this and 90 degrees and yeah. I just give this and try to like look like I'm not getting this like help yeah and but that's kind of like my whole life like I've never really asked for help I've, I've really tried to play the victim in certain things mm. and I really just was like and then by not seeing her and facing the wall I'm, I'm like not there but she was really there to guide me she was really on there and I didn't make her wrong mm. and then I really got committed and surrendered and the chickens and the breasts and the, and the guys next to me and everything I got it, it was it was like the worst yoga class that was the worst yoga class I'd ever had and this woman's space and her energy was so committed mm-hmm. that I was so committed. Mm-hmm. And wherever I was, whatever the temperature, whatever the context of mm-hmm. it was, mm-hmm. I really got committed mm-hmm. to really being there and not really making an excuse for things. Yeah. And just being present. And, yeah. it, and it is really awesome. Yeah, not collapsing and not, like, acting out. Yeah, and it was like I was in the zone and I was completely present. What a totally great story. Yeah, and it was, and that's, like, what's really been happening now. But it's the moment of, of 
love and compassion and the trust that comes there that, that it opens up to things. Right, and then we can actually be friendly in an authentic way. So, uh, you know, even though he says friendship to Lisa trust, trust is based on compassion or whatever. It's like, to me, it's just all interrelated. Yeah. And, and what I love about moments like that is like, okay, a, a perfect storm of, in this case, difficult circumstances came together and something shifted. But then, for me, what's delightful is I start to be on the lookout for it. Like, oh, I don't have to have horrible circumstances. I can be on the lookout for that in even simpler ways, where it's not so extreme. And so I might not catch it, because it's not so extreme. And like, oh, where else? Where else? And we just start to, we just start to orient differently. We start to orient towards that sense of presence in its most ordinary manifestations. Um, and for me, that that's... That's actually part of how I work with wise view. It's like just kind of getting, yeah, getting my orientation of practice wiser and wiser and wiser, and more and more and more circumstances. Anyway, yeah, yeah. time for maybe uh, one more. Uh, maybe I'll let our facilitator decide. Because don't we end about eleven fifty? Uh-huh. Yeah. Okay. So I'll let you decide the one more. Jim, I say. Not a long remark, but I, I had a um, just in relationship to how travel can be so stimulating. Mm-hmm. Um, an old school friend, a devout Catholic, and uh, mm-hmm. she referred to the Holy Spirit as the tour guide. And she said, oh, the tour guide loves to travel. <laughs> just because they're, you know, you're out of your safety zone and you're, you're exposed. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> That's a great way to end. And, and certainly, you know, if you have more thoughts or questions or reflections, I'm going to hang out a while afterwards because, you know, this is, I don't want to just disappear right away. I'd love to chat with some of you guys. So, a little bit to be continued. Excellent. Thank you, Heather. Mm-hmm. Appreciate it. Yeah. Okay, so it's time for, <coughs> for announcements. Um, if I may, I'll begin with uh, next week's speaker is Mushin Ikea Nash who is a meditation teacher, community peace activist, writer, diversity facilitator, and mother. She's done monastic and lay Zen Buddhist practice over the past 30 years in various countries, and her poetry, fiction, and essays have been published widely in different journals. So she'll be joining us um, next week. Jeff? Can I just add an important uh, part yes. of what she wanted people to know is that she has a severe environmental illness, so mm-hmm. please don't wear scents or colognes. Uh, be as neutral as you can. Great. And it's it's Grisha's first uh, facilitation next week for us, and we're going to be setting up the rooms. So. <laughs> oh, you're going to be great. Yeah, he's going to be great. But the reason I bring it up is just to remind us that instead of lighting the candles in here with the, self, the smell of sulfur or whatever, we need to light them out there and yeah. do a few things just to be mindful of that for this lady. And the next. Uh, announcement is about Donna, which means generosity, and uh, we will be going around with the Donna Bowl. The Donna Bowl is real helpful to the community because it pays the rent, it pays for our wonderful speakers that come here, it, it also for the Larkin Street dinners and for the mailer that we do once a month. The suggested donation is $10, but if you whatever you can give is greatly appreciated. And with that, um, Cass, where are you? Will you do the honors today? Yeah. Um, please stay and enjoy the gift of fellowship of the Sangha. Um, and um, there are um, snacks outside.
tea. If you have tea, please wash a cup of hot soap and water. Um, there's a sign-up sheet on the credenza over here for anybody who would like to add their name to um, our mailing list. And at around 12.30, some people get together and go out to lunch. Um, anybody's welcome to join them. They gather at the front door at around 12.30. Thank you. Anyone else? Okay, let's go ahead and stand for a dedication of hand, please. Thank you for listening to the Gay Buddhist Forum. If you would like to hear several new talks per month and be notified of upcoming speakers so you can participate live, please subscribe to this podcast, like us on Facebook, and join our mailing list by visiting gaybuddhist.org.